I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Today, a straightforward question. As we consider the future of diversity and inclusion in private equity, can the industry meet the challenge? To seek answers, the Private Capital Project at the Harvard Business School and the Private Capital Research Institute recently hosted a webinar with a group of limited and general partners. What did they find? I spoke with one of the conference leaders, Dr. Josh Lerner, the Schiff Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School. Josh co-directs the National Bureau of Economic Research's Productivity, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship Program and serves as co-editor of their publication, Innovation Policy and the Economy. He founded and runs the Private Capital Research Institute, a nonprofit devoted to encouraging access to data and research, and has been a frequent leader of and participant in the World Economic Forum projects and events. He's been named one of the 100 most influential people in private equity over the past decade and one of the 10 most influential academics in the institutional investing world. Before my conversation with Dr. Lerner, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these working capital conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Josh Lerner. Josh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. So why did you bring together this group for the discussion that you had? What was your goal? What really was twofold, one of which is that I'm convinced that this is a topic that has really been under-researched, that um, there's just so much more need to build understanding of this of the issues here, and that I was hoping that this would uh, stimulate uh, the academic work. But on the other hand, there's also just been enormous practical interest around this that pensions, endowments, and others are, are, are thinking about and grappling with these issues and sort of bring together some uh, thoughtful people who know the territory well, I thought would be very helpful as well. So have you been getting questions and inquiries from, uh, from the marketplace? Well, we did a series of studies for the uh, John and James Knight Foundation, mm -hmm. which essentially looked at diversity and diversely owned asset managers. So essentially saying when we look across various asset classes from public to private and then within private, you know, from real estate to venture to hedge funds and so forth, um, what do we end up seeing in terms of the role of firms that are diversely owned, whether women owned or minority mm -hmm. owned and using various thresholds, but largely focusing on 50% plus ownership. So, you know, at the time that we originally did the work with Knight, you know, it got some attention, but not uh, an extreme amount of attention, but really within the last uh, six months, there's certainly been a, uh, explosion of interest in this in this topic and a lot of inquiries from uh, people within the um, investment management world. And was your goal in bringing together the folks that you that you did um, was your goal to identify challenges and issues, or was it to find actual solutions? A little bit of both. That I think that certainly when you think about the work that we did with Knight, it documented the nature of the problem but it really didn't either get into the root causes of those problems or 
what the best solutions would be. Mm. And clearly those are really first order problems. They're obviously very linked uh, because without really understanding the the root causes, it's hard to come up with solutions, but really wanted to advance the discussion around how to address the disparities certainly seen in the uh, numbers that we put together. So let's start uh, talking about some of the areas that you explored. What is the build the pipeline problem? Well, essentially, one way to think about it is that the way in which one gets um, a lot of owner, a lot of diversely owned firms is that one that it's it's in some sense no different from any other kind of um, uh, new private equity groups that in some sense uh, what you say what is the the most common way of getting a new private equity group or a new real estate group or even for that matter a new public market group it tends to be people who are working for the established groups for the most established firms in the industry who spin out and start their own groups, right? So yep. you know, if you were to look at private equity as an example, you know, there's just been generations of people who have left the, the Baines and General Atlantics of the world with great track records. And then that their, their success has ended up allowing them to go out and begin their own firms. And in the same way, you know, when it comes to diversely owned firms, you know, we'd like to see that same process working. Yet, um, you know, historically, the you know, when you look across the senior investment staff in uh, you know many corners of investment management, uh, it has been um, you know not a huge amount of women and not a huge amount of minorities. So, in a way, the first challenge really is this building the pipeline of people within the uh, within the uh, large firms who with an eye towards the thought that, um, you know, some years hence, once they've developed a terrific track record, that they might consider spinning out themselves. I was surprised, I've got to say, to read uh, your finding that, and I'm reading from your report now, um, hiring decisions are too often made by unseasoned junior associates who are less cognizant of the broader goals of the organization and less experienced in finding talented minorities. Uh, and then you continued that um, uh, this change will require involvement of the most senior people at the organizations. Uh, it also may require a change in mindset. Okay, moving on there. So the, the junior versus senior, every organization I have ever uh, had you know, talked with, studied, researched, I would assume the same is true for you. You're the one who does that for a living. We'll say, number one, talent is, is what matters. Talent is our differential. It's the people. How, how could you have found that this type of hiring was being done by unseasoned junior associates? Well, I just think that it's probably fair to say that rookie hiring, no matter what the uh, field, is a lot of work. Right. You have to go through a process of plowing through a lot of resumes. There's a lot of interviews, a lot of screening. It's it's just a laborious process. So it's not surprising that, you know, whether we're looking at investment banks or private equity groups or for that matter, academic institutions, 
there's a tendency on the part of the old guys sometimes to say, you know, you guys go and do it, right? You know, in some sense, the appeal of having young people do this is that, you know, they have the time and energy. And in many cases, they're, you know, they're close in, in age and can, you know, read between the lines in terms of people in a way that, you know, certainly seems appealing. But I think the concern which was highlighted is that in in many cases, uh, you know, there's there's sort of a tendency on the part of young people, just, you know, nature of the world, to end up looking at and ending up hiring a bunch of people who are, you know, more or less like themselves. And if one's goal is to, you know, sort of dramatically improve the um, diversity of an organization, there's often a need to, uh, you know, what was the phrase that Apple used? Think different, right? Mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm, you know, to mm-hmm. Think a little bit outside the normal pipeline uh, that's there and to really challenge some of the assumptions as to uh, what makes, you know, a, a promising candidate and, and what are, you know, what are the, you know, what, what are we really looking for? And I think it's that, that sort of ability to think different that is probably not what one's typically going to see among the, you know, in a situation where a lot of the hiring decisions have been devolved to the uh, uh, younger generation, no matter how smart and ambitious they are. are. Are you finding within the industry a desire to think differently about HR and about hiring in general, or have you not necessarily seen that yet? And and this that's one of the reasons why you you know have this recommendation. Well, I think that in a way, there's a two-sided answer. I mean, so certainly today, everyone's saying the right things and paying attention to this issue. But I think if you were to look over, for instance, the history of um, investment banking and recruiting, you know, there have been a series of, of initiatives over the years where there's been a lot of attention paid to this issue and a, commit, a lot of commitments made to focus, for instance, on increasing minority hiring and the like. But often it seems that these things, you know, there's initial wave of enthusiasm and then it just sort of peters out, right? And it goes back to the way that the world's always, always been. So I think the the question is not really about the short run and the interest in the short run, but really more in terms of, uh, you know, whether this time can be different in terms of a real long-term commitment to this kind of hiring and building the pipeline that's needed. In terms of the long-term and in terms of thinking about this beyond just the short-term requirements, that's where I would think investment starts to come in and rethinking the investment criteria and the role that the LPs can play. For LPs, they operate, though, under a defined set of investment criteria. Are those criteria properly defined to meet this moment in challenge? I think it's a very interesting and important question. And I think one thing that we shouldn't do is minimize the challenge that LPs face, right? That, you know, they've got uh, a lot of money to, uh, you know, a lot of money to uh, put to work. Uh, there's sort of a, uh, a general temptation to sort of say, we want to write only a few big checks and have a limited number of relationships just simply because it's challenging, um, you know, challenging uh, to manage a whole bunch of smaller set of ties. 
And there's almost inevitably going to be uh, a bit of a bias towards saying, let's go with the, uh, you know, the, the most established and seasoned groups out there. You know, you, as I'm sure you've heard many times, uh, you know, there's that old saying about no one got fired for buying IBM. Yes. I, mean, I think that, you know, a little bit of that carries over into the investment management world as well, right? Saying that, you know, choosing some of the most established and safe names is, uh, in some sense, uh, uh, a no-lose kind of strategy. And I think, you know, certainly one of the challenges that many diversely owned firms face is that they're smaller. Yes. They're younger, so less of a track record. And, um, you know, so as a result, they're, uh, even if they're potentially very attractive, for instance, you know, just to raise one criterion, they may be, you know, profoundly differentiated, right, in terms of looking at market segments and having networks that majority-owned firms are going to find very difficult to penetrate. At the same time, they're going to be difficult to fit in using the sort of standard plain vanilla uh, criterion that, you know, a large pension fund might 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 use. So. It's- and so what guidance do you give LPs? I mean, I, I'm sure you are sensitive to the challenge. They, yeah. I'm sure, would argue uh, simultaneously that, yes, absolutely, they want to support in any way possible um, diverse uh, GPs and, and diverse opportunities. At the same time, what they must do is be absolutely blind to that because what their responsibility is in terms of uh, return on their investment and to look at uh, every investment based on the financial factors. How, how do you encourage or persuade um, a balance? Is there a, is there a market case for what you're arguing? Yeah. So first of all, it's, it's important to emphasize that there really isn't a, a trade-off here that, you know, certainly the work we did for night looking across a wide variety of asset classes found that diversely owned firms, you know, whether in private equity or real estate or uh, so forth did as well, you know, statistically indistinguishably uh, different from the majority owned firms. Yes. Yep. So it's not like we live in a world where there is essentially some sort of expectation that one, you know, because one has diversely owned firm, there's going to be, you know, uh, one has to accept by definition some lower, lower performance as a result. That being said, you know, clearly there needs to be, in some cases, uh, a broadening of the criteria. So just let's think about size, for instance. You know, many of the uh, diversely owned groups are smaller there and because they've been around uh, not as long and haven't sort of, you know, broken into the firmament, firmament of mega funds. But that being said, there's nothing written in stone that, you know, pension funds, for instance, have to put all their money with very large managers. And what we, you know, are, what the conversation highlighted is really saying, you know, let's, you know, with, without posing this sort of false dichotomy of, you know, diversity versus performance, mm-hmm. still try to think about where are the stumbling blocks that lead owners to say no 
even if there is a, you know, a very promising diversely owned, diversely owned group. What's the role for activism in generating change here? Well, I think that's an interesting, uh, a very interesting question, which has got uh, a bunch of different, uh, different sides to it. You know, certainly there have been a number of efforts, concerted efforts in the last uh, year or two to try to highlight the fact that diversely owned uh, managers represent a small part of institutional uh, ownership. And in some sense, I think it's hard not to respect that, that, that effort, right? As one of our panelists pointed out, you know, there's been a long history of people saying stuff in the United States about why minorities can't have this or can't have that. And largely they've not changed their mind on their own accord, but mm-hmm. have responded to external, external pressure. At the same time, there is, um, you know, I, I'm sort of cautious about a problem that I sometimes call the intolerance of failure. And one of the things that we saw looking in depth at private equity and private equity investments by uh, institutional investors in the last uh, several decades is that it seems that uh, diversely owned firms have been treated differently from majority-owned firms when it comes to how underperformance is treated. Hmm. And in particular, it seems that diversely-owned firms are punished much more severely for underperformance in terms of being either unable to raise a follow-on fund or just simply getting their fund size dialed down very dramatically in a way that many majority-owned firms haven't. And in some sense, we know that, you know, part of the investment business is underperformance, right? That even if we think about some of the great names of in various asset classes, they almost all went through some period where they had a rough patch and had some uh, disappointing, uh, dis- disappointing returns. And, you know, in many cases, their investors stuck with them and allowed them to work their way out of the woods and write the ship and all, the, all that. And in a way, it's hard not to think that a little bit of the uh, intolerance of failure problem, you know, sort of stems from asset owners who sort of went, you know, went along with investing in a diversely owned fund, but weren't really committed to it. And then were far more unforgiving of a little stumble than they would have been of a majority owned firm. So in a way, there's a there's a bit of a balancing act there, but certainly, um, I guess my feeling is that anything we can do to you know very much encourage attention to this issue and to highlight the potential of diversely owned firms is going to be positive by and large. So that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. Was so how, how do you get the word out? The intolerance of failure. Uh, dichotomy that you just described. The fact that the uh, return on investment from diversely owned uh, firms is the same, the data that you talked about earlier and the research that you have done. The importance of changing the uh, filling the pipeline process and getting senior managers more engaged. How do you get word out on that message? It's a great question, Chris. I think there's a couple areas that I would highlight. 
One is that I think there's a need for continuing data that in some sense, we know that old saying about how you can't manage what you don't measure. Mm. Our work with Knight was sort of an initial effort to try to measure some of this stuff, but keeping up the measurement and you know, having dashboards and understanding you know, what is happening with the industry, I think is an important aspect. Beyond that, I think there's also a real need for best practices that when you look across the industry, you see that there are some asset owners who seem to have been quite successful in getting their funds in the hands of diversely owned managers and, uh, and really doing well with it. There have been others who have been quite successful in encouraging their, uh, their GPs to pay serious attention to this issue. And I think that one of the things that we really behooves us as academics is to capture some of the best practices that are out there in terms of building diversity in industry and really highlight the nuts and bolts of what they did so that these things can be more widely emulated throughout the industry. And is that work that you're doing or is that a nugget that you're putting out there hoping that uh, another another big fish like you will come along and, and take a bite and, and carry carry things forward? Well, we're taking a stab at it ourselves, but I think that this is a big issue with a lot of aspects to it. So hopefully some of my uh, colleagues will get excited about this area as well. Why are you doing it just to close out? I mean, what, what, what inspired, I mean, you've got limited, we all have a limited time. Um, there, there are a lot of different uh, areas that you uh, could and should be researching. Um, why for you personally, are you devoting time, energy to this topic? Well, I just think it's uh, really, really, I mean, the patterns that we see in data are just really striking, right, in terms of, and when you think about financial intermediation, you know, obviously venture and PE and real estate are great examples of this. There's really two aspects that make having diversity really important. One, of course, is just simply wealth creation. We know that, you know, Owning asset management firms has been a route to wealth creation. And in as much as we're concerned about the uneven distribution of, of wealth in this country, I think anything that can be done to encourage wealth creation in the, uh, you know, in the minority communities, especially is going to be a strong positive aspect. But the other aspect is something which the um, academics sometimes call homophily by which they mean that people tend to fund other people who are like themselves. And in a way, if we're really interested in trying to boost, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, new ventures in the minority communities, having uh, a bunch of, diversely owned, well-capitalized investment managers is, I think, in many senses, a really important piece of the puzzle. So in a way, when we think about these intermediaries, this is really high-powered money, mm. and it can really have second-order effects which can really impact society in a very broad kind of way. Well, it's high-powered money. It's also high-powered uh, work, and it's high-powered importance. So uh, thank you, Josh. Thank you for uh, your time, and thank you for the work that you've done. Really enjoyed having a chance to talk. Thanks again. 